Okay, let's pray. Uh, let's get started. Well, Father, uh, we do come before you today, and we thank you so much, Lord, for the glory of your grace. Lord, thank you for being so gracious to us. Lord, thank you for your Son. Father, thank you so much today for the revelation of your word, Lord. Thank you that we have in Scripture a more sure word of prophecy that we can rely on, that we can build our life on, and that we can trust with all of our heart, knowing, Lord, that you are fully uh, in control of all things and that you, Lord, um, are faithful to your people. And so, God, we thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. We thank you for... Um, giving us life another day so that we can live and glorify you. We pray that you would be glorified by the fruit of our lips. Pray that you would help us to to worship you, Lord, in our inner man and in truth, in an authentic place where no one sees. Lord, uh, we, we don't want to be, as Jesus says of the Pharisees, those that draw near to you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. Lord, help our hearts to be in tune with who you are. We thank you, Father. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. This is what we're studying today um, as we continue going through the doctrine of God. Okay? We're looking at the Trinity, the triune God, and I know for us, we're sitting here, and it's a subject that we're just like, okay, um, we know the Trinity. I, I'm sure, you know, I can pull on some of you guys to give me your, what's your favorite Trinitarian passage in the Bible? Okay, Dub? Ephesians 1. Man, that's quick. Um. <laughs> you, better, you, better, you better bring up a verse, too. <laughs> Ephesians 1 what? <laughs> 1, um, 11 through 14. Okay. What does it say? What's the gist of that? I'm just talking about just the predestination. It, it really gives glory to each person of the each Trinity. Each member of the Trinity. Okay. Yeah, that's wrap right. Wrap it for us. <laughs> yeah, wrap it. Bust out a wrap. Uh, what other verse? Uh, Pastor Chris, I know you love the doctrine of the Trinity. What's your favorite Trinity verse? Jehovah Witnesses. What's what's your what's your go-to verse? Well, I mean, they say it's never wise to go to John 1, 1 you know, with the... Unless you know Greek. Unless you know Greek. So you would go to John 1 1. Uh, but yeah, I could go to John 1 1 with them, but I think it's one of the clearest passages, you know, on having a plurality of persons in the Godhead. Right. I mean, it's right. It's really so clear, it's, it's so helpful. So that. Right. Or, you know, kind of like the doxology at the end of 2 Corinthians. Yeah. You know, where you have a triune statement. Okay. All right. Spirit. That's good. Anybody else? John? What's, what's your favorite Trinity verse? Actually, I like Ephesians 2 18. For through him, that's. Uh, Through Christ, person, we have access in one spirit to spirit the Father. To the Father. Wow, look at that! All three members, right in there. One As a matter of fact, Ephesians is kind of uh, known for that. Yeah. Uh, several, I think, like six different verses in Ephesians that uh, either one or two or three verses string them together, and they have all the members of the Trinity. That's good. Well, um, you know, the, the doctrine of Trinity is so important, you guys. Let me maybe we can start on a historical note. I know you guys have heard of the Council of Nicaea. Council of Nicaea. What year was that? 325. Three, oh, 325 A.D., right? The Council of Nicaea was really important because there uh, was sort of the, you know, that, that was like the, the, the final showdown, if you would, of uh, the, the whole doctrine of not so much the Trinity, but the doctrine of Christ. So it was all surrounding 
Christology, okay? It was all surrounding Christology. And for you and I, I mean, maybe even if we like apologetics, we may study the Trinity, we may learn things about the Trinity. But at the Council of Nicaea, if you were Trinitarian, as Carl Truman has said from Westminster, there were scholars at the Council of Nicaea that almost gave their life for the doctrine uh, of the Trinity. They were persecuted over the doctrine. There were people there with missing limbs, gouged out eyes, all because they refused to renounce the doctrine of the Trinity. Because they understood well that if you lose the doctrine of the Trinity, you have lost your religion. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity is that essential, that important. Uh, if a denial of the Trinity is tantamount to a denial of your Christian faith. In other words, the doctrine of the Trinity is one of those things that we would say belongs to the essentials of the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Can you be a Christian and deny the doctrine of the Trinity? We would say, no, you cannot. The reason why is passages um, that I can think of like, like, like uh, uh, Jesus saying, uh, unless you honor the Son, just like you honor the Father, you do not honor the Father. I mean, what a statement. If you don't honor the Son exactly the way that you honor the Father, you do not honor the Father. It was the expressed mission of the Father that people would honor the Son. Think about Psalm 2. Talk about a Trinitarian passage. Psalm chapter 2. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Kiss the son. Why would we go up to Jesus and give him a kiss? No. <laughs> That's not what that meant. It's a Hebrew idiom expression for homage. I think it's even translated like that in some Bibles. Do homage to the son. It means worship the son. Bow down to the son, lest you perish in the way. So here's God commanding his people to worship his son. You know, uh, very, very, very important. Uh, so the doctrine of the Trinity is very important, very essential. Historically speaking, uh, why, did, um, why did the early church, uh, why did, did the early church, let's say, at, let's say between the year, um, at the close of the first century, so after 100 AD to let's say four or 500 AD, is, did the Christian church invent the, doc, the doctrine of the Trinity at that time? No. No. Okay, right, no. Um, why then did they focus on the doctrine of the Trinity so much? I mean, I've talked to plenty of Jehovah Witnesses that will tell you, oh, the doctrine of the Trinity, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible. <laughs> so why would you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? The Trinity was invented by the early church Sometimes they'll say at the Council of Nicaea or something like that. You know what I mean? They did not invent the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, first of all. Second of all, uh, why, John, did they uh, focus on it so much? That's what was being attacked, the, the doctrines related to that. Correct, correct, correct. Um, so you have uh, the, you know, the Antinocene fathers the church fathers between that period of time of the early church all the way up to the Council of Nicaea, if you read their writings, you have to be very careful what you read because the church fathers, they, they would come up with some wild interpretations of some things and you'd be like, wow, that's strange, you know? But there's one thing that the early church was really, really good at and that was defending orthodoxy. 
So when the, when the, uh, the, the person and work of Christ was under attack, they rose up at the Council of Nicaea. One individual in particular, what was his name? Athanasius. Let me write that down. Athanasius. Not Athanasius. <laughs> Athanasius is how you pronounce his name. And he was fighting, so, versus another man by the name of Arius. Arius. And Arius was at the Council of Nicaea and, and consequent councils condemned as a heretic. Why? Because he denied that Jesus was God. He said Jesus is a creature. He is a created being like an angel. And, um, and so they duked it out at the Council of Nicaea. Athanasius clearly won. He won the whole debate, and there was a multitude of scholars and, 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 and bishops and different people there, Alexand um, Athanasius himself being from Alexandria. So... This is, the Trinity in total is a, has been a hotly debated issue. The opponents of the Christian faith have often risen up. You go backwards in time from Arius, from the very <coughs> earliest times. Prior to Arius, you had a man by the name of Praxius, who also denied the deity of Christ. Prior to Praxius, you had a man by the name of Noetus, who very few people even know about. But this is from the earliest times. This is very early in the second century. This man was already undermining the deity of Christ, but being condemned and being attacked by people like Polycarp, Tertullian, Arrhenius, Ignatius, all these church fathers that would overthrow these heretics. So it's very important. There's a huge history. I really encourage you to study the history. If you're a Christian and you love the Trinity, you should know the history of the Trinity. You should know a little bit of the background of what it took for you and I to sit here today as Trinitarians. Because this is an amazing development. During this period of time, during this period of time, the Trinity or, or the doctrine of Arius, Arianism, very nearly overthrew the doctrine of the Trinity and came very close. There was a time in history where more people were Arians than they were Trinitarians. Uh, this probably has to do with Arius's close friendship to a very popular and powerful man, namely Constantine. Emperor Constantine was a good friend of Arius. Uh, Arius baptized him. Arius ministered to him at his death. Arius and Constantine were both very close friends, and that's probably one of the reasons why Arius was given such a platform to spread his heresy. Uh, doesn't bode well either for Constantine, does it? I mean, be careful if you're good, if you're buddy-buddies with a heretic. <laughs> it's probably not a good legacy to leave behind, a confusion, a cloud of confusion, a cloud of doubt. You know, it doesn't sound good. Yes, sir? Where did modalism, how did that get started? So modalism, modalism sprang out mainly after Arius by the name, by a man by the name of Sibelius. Sibelius, Sibelianism. Okay, which was an attack on the three persons of the Trinity. They would say, Sibelius argued, no, there is only one person in the Trinity, and that he manifests himself in different modes or manifestations. Uh, do we see Sibelianism today, modalism today? Yes. Who? who, who? T.D. Jakes? 
Phillips, Craig, and Dean. Wow, you guys went right to contemporary people. <laughs> That's right. Phillips, Craig, and Dean, who wrote a really popular worship song uh, entitled You Are God Alone, um, uh, are professed modalists. And they, and they maintain and support their denial of the Trinity. And so does T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes on his uh, website, which is, you know, right here in Dallas, I mean, he, he, you know, he expressly denies the idea of persons and says, no, these are modes or manifestations. And so what modalism is saying, I wanted to save the heresy for the end, but anyway, we're, you know, that's what I get for getting into history, right? But, you know, modalism is basically saying, look, there's one person in the God, in, in God. And he basically manifests himself in different ways. So he puts on one mask and he's the father. He puts on another mask and he's the spirit. He puts on another mask and he's the son. What's the problem with that? What's the problem with that? Okay, so the Bible teaches directly against it. Right? <clears throat> right. What are some logical problems with that? Philosophical problems with that? Ventriloquism. Ventriloquism. So God is like a divine ventriloquist? I would argue, I would argue, you don't know who's behind the mask. Right? If he's just putting on a mask, it's different mode, different manifestation, who really is God? You don't even know who God really is. He's hiding behind these manifestations. And so, you know, oneness Pentecostals have argued, oh no, this is Jesus is the person. So Jesus onlyism is saying it's actually the Son who is the only one manifesting himself in different modes and manifestations. So that is kind of a historical background. Hey, Josh, you got that eraser right next to you, I see, huh? Yes. You want to try to football that up here? Hey, you look like the heat, man. Yeah. <laughs> I was like Dwayne Wade trying to pass the ball to. <laughs> Not doing too good. Okay. All right, let's, um, <clears throat> let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. There's essentially three different things that I want to begin with today in talking about uh, the Trinity as we kind of lay the foundation work, you know. And the very first thing is we think about the concept of the Trinity. Uh, let's define it. Let, let me give you a standard definition of it. Um, <clears throat> the one God of Scripture exists as three equal co-eternal persons who share in all the divine attributes perfectly and equally. Okay? That's my definition based on studying different systematic theologies. Okay? Um, you can use that. Just don't forget to give me credit for it. Okay? Quote. <laughs> Yeah, that's just a standard definition. The one God of Scripture exists as three co-equal, co-eternal persons who share in all the divine attributes perfectly and equally. What that means is that just as the Father is omnipotent, the Son and the Spirit are omnipotent in all the other attributes of God. They all share perfectly. Um, and so when we look at the Trinity, the Trinity is certainly perplexing and there's no way around that. It is a difficult doctrine. It is a perplexing doctrine because what we're saying is there's one God, mm -hmm. there's three persons, and there's not three gods. That would be called tritheism. There are not three gods. There is one God, but yet there are three persons. Uh, and yet we can never conclude that the Father 
is the Son or the Spirit is the Father, all of these types of things. Uh, there are three persons within the one Godhead. And so uh, this is what has given theologians um, uh, a great uh, challenge to try to systematize how it's possible. And so we have to begin with the concept of incomprehensibility. Comprehensibility. I think the spelling is incomprehensible. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> My wife's never going to let me let that one down. Comprehensible. Okay. Incomprehensibility. You think the hen is supposed to be an E there, too. Yeah. Am I right? Okay. You guys know better than me. There okay. you go. Incomprehensibility. Right? Yes, sir. Um, going back to your statement that you can never say... The Father is the Son, and those kind of things. Can you explain to us, uh, like, problem passage, like First Corinthians, where it says the Lord is the Spirit? Uh, I will eventually. Okay. <laughs> uh, but right now, um, uh, I want to just kind of lay the foundation of three important things. Because there's one thing about the Trinity you got to understand, is when you approach it from a systematic theology level, Okay, that's what we're doing, right? We're coming to the scriptures and we're asking the scriptures, what does the scripture say about the doctrine of the Trinity? The very first thing that you know is that the doctrine of the Trinity is progressively unfolding in the Bible. That means to say we are going from less information to more information. But once we get down to the the idea that we have more information, we get the, the, the New Testament fuller, more comprehensive revelation of the Trinity, then you can go back to the Old Testament. You say, oh, this makes sense. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He said, let there be light. The spirit was hovering over the deeps, right? Over the darkness and the deep. Okay, well, right there is a picture of the Trinity. You have the word You have God the Father, and you have the Spirit brooding over the waters. That's a perfect picture of the Trinity. Now, you know that because of Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, that Jesus Christ made all things. You know that from John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Nothing came into being that has come into being apart from the Son. So you know that from the idea of full revelation. But... There are aspects of the doctrine of the Trinity that remain incomprehensible because there are aspects of God that remain incomprehensible. Who can explain the infinity of God? So Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depth, the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his and unfathomable his ways unfathomable means you can't fathom it it's too deep unsearchable the greek word literally means you cannot trace his footsteps that's what it means his footsteps go on for eternity you can't search it out you you fall dead before you find the end of god's trail of thought okay uh, it says, for who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be paid back to him for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. Job said in Job 11 verse seven, can you discover the depths of God? 
Can you discover the limit of the Almighty? You can't. He is limitless. He is absolutely limitless. But at the same time, we know that we are not surprised at the fact that we have this fuller revelation because Luke chapter 10, maybe a verse that you should jot down to remember, we know what Jesus said. Jesus says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. Think about that, that phrase. And then he says, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. This kind of goes nicely into my sermon today. But um, so, the idea of sovereignty. But at the same time, he's saying, who knows God? Only the Son fully understands the Father. And only the Father fully has exhaustive knowledge of the Son. This is an intra-Trinitarian, or what they would call a binitarian knowledge. Two members of the Trinity instead of three here, but we can deduce from this that the whole Trinity fully comprehends itself. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. You know, all these types of things. So, there is a certain level of incomprehensibility where our mind runs out, where analogies run out, right? We can make analogies, right? Oh, the Trinity is like water. You've got vapor, ice, and liquid, you know? <laughs> but there, huh? That's one analogy, you know? But at some point, all analogies run out. They run their course, and they just simply cannot supply us with a perfect analog analogy of what the being of God is really like. Um, so let's begin by talking about another foundational principle, and that is that God is multi-personal from the very beginning. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. So from the very beginning, God, even though he discloses very small bits of information of this great grand doctrine of the Trinity, is already sort of laying the foundation for the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, if God were a Unitarian God, if God was a modalist God, if God was a, you know, a, a strict monotheistic God, then he would not have laid down the groundwork for a multi-personal God. So, Genesis 1.26, you know this. Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the sky or over, over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. It's amazing to me. And the lesson, let a lesson be learned. So much theology goes back to Genesis. Just amazing. Have you guys found that? Mm -hmm. So much theology takes you right back to Genesis. Just amazing. Anyway, you see the plural pronouns. Us, our, and our. Yes, sir. Um... Some apologists would say that that is not the best example from the original language to use for showing the Trinity. Could you explain why that is? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, because uh, there's there's historically there's a debate going all the way all the way back to rabbinical tradition, intertestamental time periods, all the way back. You know, the Jews have grappled with what does this mean? I mean, there's rabbinical tradition that gives you evidence that rabbis are debating. Is he talking about the angels? Uh, God is saying, let us make man, and he's talking to his host of angelic beings? Well, no, of course not, because human beings are not created in the image of angels, okay? So in other words, there's no consensus 
Um, I happen to disagree with those scholars, however, or those apologists that wouldn't want to go back to here. And what I would say simply is this, is that going back to the plurality language of Genesis simply establishes for us that God conceives of himself as multi-personal at some fundamental level. He doesn't speak in total solitary terms. He opens the door, if you would, mm -hmm. right, for that. Same thing he does in Genesis 3.22. The Lord said, behold, the man has become like one of us. Us. Knowing good and evil. Yeah, it's like, it's like any kid, if you read them the, you know, from a kid Bible, or just if you were to read to them at night, they, they would deduce who is God talking to. Of course. They'd say, well, that's interesting. Who's I love it. Sometimes, yeah, that's right. Sometimes the simplest, basic, elementary, childlike approach to Scripture just overthrows the technical academic, you know, musings of the most elated minds that have ever lived. And that's where we get the idea. I mean, sorry, I had to do all that. that's where we get the idea of a family. Huh? That's where we get the idea of a family is from God. Because God is, is if you would, a family. That's right. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Right. There's a community there. And there, and there's, there's, um, there, you can't, there's, I don't know how to say this, but you can't, there's nothing that can come close to the oneness of a family. Mm. That's why homosexuality is, is so wrong. You had to go there. Because it distorts. <laughs> They're on the Trinity. Right? <laughs> on the Trinity. The reason why it is so wrong is for the very reason that it distorts the Trinity. That's right. The being of God, because two okay. women can't be one. Mm. Right. Two right. men can't be one. So it goes back to the very, the very, very beginning. Right. The Trinity, so since God is one and he is a family, if you would, I don't know if that's the right. Sure, community, that's right. Community. Yeah, it's a yeah, true relationship. Oneness. And then God takes us out of our families and puts us into the family of God. Correct. Amen. Yeah, that's right. No, that's true. It's just, it is, there is Trinitarian foundations, too, mm -hmm. um, to that. Um, let me just give you a few others. Um, this doesn't just happen early on in Genesis. It also happens later on in Genesis. Genesis 11, verse 7, you know the story of the Tower of Babel. That is where man, in all of his arrogance and all of his pride and pomp, thinks that he's going to build a tower high enough to go, to, to go up and be with uh, and ascend into heaven himself on his own. Theologically, by the way, the Tower of Babel is answered by the the, uh, the the angel Jacob's ladder, mm -hmm. the, you know, Babel failed because they didn't have the proper the proper uh, means of ascension. But how do you ascend into heaven? Well, Genesis what is it twenty eight answers that through Jacob's ladder. Who is Jacob's ladder? Christ. Jesus Christ. Anyway, I had to, you know, whole Christ in the OT. Yeah. You know, you know, I got to get that in there. Genesis eleven seven. Come, let us go down there and uh, and confuse their language. Let us go down. Uh, what about? We might say, well, that's yeah, that's because the patri the primeval history of of man, primeval primeval history, just referring to the the most ancient history of biblical times prior to the patriarchal history. But what about after the patriarchal times? Where does this plurality language go from there? Some say, well, it's just a plurality of majesty. No, that, 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 that will not do. 
There is no evidence in ancient literature, Near Eastern literature at all, that this type of language was used back then. Yes, sir? Would Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, be good? Or the and uni- uh, it will. It, it it does. It does. Let me mention that in a second. That's a good point. But give you just to show you. You go to Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. God does not stop talking in plural terms. So here's here we are. Fast forward thousands of years in redemptive history, and God is still speaking in plurality. Then I heard a voice of the Lord. Isaiah six eight. Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Isn't that amazing? As, 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 as Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 12, uh, Isaiah just got a vision of the Trinity. He saw Jesus' glory. Just what Jesus talks about. Uh, holy, holy, holy. Uh, ascribing glory to the three members of the Trinity, I believe. So he's saying, who will go for us? Let me give you some scholars. I'm not a scholar, but these guys are. Keelan Dillich, um, very well-respected um, commentary on the Old Testament, 10 volumes. They say the plural we was regarded by the fathers and early theologians almost unanimously as indicative of the Trinity. They say that uh, with objections to other positions and an affirmation that Genesis 126 contains the truth that lies at the foundation of the Trinitarian view. So that's just one Old Testament scholar's perspective after he looked at all of the patristic literature and all, just all of the ancient literature on this. Um, okay, what about the multi-personality of God in different ways? Turn to Psalm 45. Psalm 45. Here you have a passage clearly speaking in multi-personal terms. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. <clears throat> you know this verse. If, you have a new, if you've read your New Testament, then you know this verse because this verse is quoted in the New Testament. Uh, if this says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your fellows. Now, what's interesting here is that the word Elohim is consistently used of each member. So it's used of uh, the first person being identified as God, Elohim, which I'd say is probably the Father, talking about the Son when he says, Your throne, O God. He's speaking of the, the, the Messiah, the Davidic King, who is also here being identified as Elohim. Really profound. Very profound. All throughout this verse, Elohim is used of both persons. Is there a passage in the Old Testament, one verse, where all the members of the Trinity are present? Very good. Where? Did you do you read that in your MacArthur Study Bible or something? <laughs> is it 16 or 6? I can't remember. 16. You want to read it for us? Amazing, right? Where are all three members of the Trinity mentioned in the Old Testament? How many Christians could answer that question? Uh, it says, John can't. to me, listen to this. <laughs> wow. From the first I have not spoken in secret. From the time that it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. This is the messianic servant of the Lord speaking. Saying that he is sent by the Lord God. Okay, so there's two people. He is sent. Who is he being sent? 
the servant of the Lord, identified as Jesus Christ, the Messiah, being sent by the Lord God, the Father, and accompanied with the Spirit. Sent me and his Spirit. Beautiful, right? Beautiful. At the end, <clears throat> both of the patriarchs and the prophets, they were convinced of God's multi-personal speech and nature. The multi-personal nature of God is used more in the New Testament. And let me give you a quote here from Bavink. Okay, this systematic theology. Oh, I hope every house in our church, every member, every household in our church owns Herman Bavink's systematic theology. Uh, he even has a one volume. He's got four volumes. I recommend you get all of them. But he's got one volume. Uh, an abridged version, about 900 pages. You know, not too, not too big, but, you know, I'm joking. It is big. But it's a reference. It's a reference. So at any time, dads, if you're teaching a Bible study in your home and you want to, you know, you want to untangle some thorny theological issue that you're having a problem with, go to Bavink. Open it up. He'll help you. I guarantee it. Bavink says... The seeds that developed into the full flower of, the New, of New Testament Trinitarian revelation are already planted in the Old Testament. So there's so much that can be said. In the New Testament, we have God clearly identifying Jesus as the Son, Jesus clarif uh, clearly identifying God as the Father, and both Father and Son laying claim to sending the Holy Spirit which has more to do with the procession process. Um, we'll get to things like that in the future. So that is, um, that is a little bit of the multipersonal. So now, lastly, let's look at, uh, that's not right. Let's look at um, biblical, biblical monotheism, okay? Biblical monotheism. If you hear people say, well, they're monotheists, like you, you better be sure what type of monotheism you're talking about. Muslims are monotheists. They believe that God is one. Is that sufficient? Of course not, right? So this is where Josh, the Shema of Israel, right? Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And the word used here is the Hebrew word echad. Echad. Can you guys say that? Echad. Congratulations. You know Hebrew. <laughs> you guys walk out. I didn't know I was going to be speaking Hebrew today. Um, the reason why echad is important is because if God wanted to speak in absolute indivisibility terms, terms of total solidarity, he would not have chosen Ehad. Because Ehad is the term that seems to always communicate some sort of unity through compound. Some sort of unity, okay, through compound. Genesis chapter 1. There was morning 
And there was evening one day. Echad. Morning, evening, one. See that? And over and over you get a sense of the use of Echad all throughout the Old Testament that it speaks of a compound of unity. The spies brought back one cluster of grapes. Echad. It's one cluster, but once again, comprised of a compound of things. What, are you guys like class clowns back there? What's going on back there? You guys, are you laughing at me or at each other or what? Okay. Ozzy, keep them in line back there, man. Don't be afraid to, you know. There's another little broom back. You can take them in the back. You know? mm-hmm. Giving you guys a hard time. Sorry. The, um, the uh, you know, the high priestly prayer. Yes. Of, G- of Jesus. Yes, ma'am. Of praying to the Father, which obviously right there, that would eliminate modalism. Because he's praying to the Father, but he just keeps talking about all everything. I mean, the whole high priestly prayer is all about us being one, like they are one. That's right. The Father. Again, that's the desire. Sure, that the thought carries over, right? right? Just like Father, Son are one. Now Jesus and his disciples will also be one. Jesus repeated biblical monotheism in the New Testament. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, the foremost command, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, Lord. So he's quoting directly from Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Shema, reiterating. Jesus did not, take, did not break with anything in the Old Testament. This is really important. This is really important, especially today. Man, I'm going to do it. I have to do it. But with the... <laughs> with the contemporary controversy over homosexuality, okay? People think Jesus didn't say anything about gay people, right? And they think that oh, they've, they've stumbled across some incredible argument. If Jesus didn't mention it, all that matters is what Jesus says. Well, guess what, folks? Jesus didn't mention pedophilia either. Jesus didn't mention bestiality. He didn't mention suicide. You think Jesus is for those things just because he doesn't mention them? Jesus upheld the entire law of God perfectly. He said, don't think I came to abolish anything. I didn't abolish it in the sense of I am contradicting what's coming before me. He didn't abolish it. He didn't say this is now useless, worthless. No, it has a fulfillment design. He came to fulfill it. But certainly, boy... Jesus believed in every jot and tittle of the Old Testament and would reinforce it, reaffirm every single bit of it. Any questions, comments, or statements? I just wanted to comment yes, sir. what Trisha was saying about the oneness with the disciples. When Paul was confronted on the road to Damascus, Jesus questioned him, interrogated him, saying, uh, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Hmm. It wasn't church it was me that's right he, he took seriously he takes seriously that that oneness with the, the unity church. sure amen let me give you um let me give you a fuller definition of the trinity now this is the westminster confession of faith i love the westminster confession of faith um and this is what it says in the unity of the godhead there are there 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 be three persons one substance power and eternity God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor preceding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. 
the Holy Ghost eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. That is the theology that we have to unfold in our next session, <laughs> because we don't have time to do that here. But maybe some concluding, uh, some conclu concluding thoughts. Anybody have any concluding thoughts before I give you mine about the doctrine of the Trinity? See how important it is, though? It affects everything, you guys. I mean, it really, it really does. It affects every part of our theology. We serve a triune God. You know what I mean? Creation is part of the Trinity. Redemptive history is Trinitarian. Mm -hmm. Salvation is Trinitarian. Um, you know, judgment is Trinitarian. The Father will judge. He's committed judgment to the Son, right? Uh, yeah, it's, it's so important, you know. The ministry of Jesus, Trinitarian. You know, um, all of the, the apostolic doctrine, totally tr Trinitarian from beginning to end. Are there any thoughts on why the Trinitarian the Trinity language isn't always brought out. Like, for instance, when Jesus Christ says, I and the Father are one, and why he wouldn't say, I, the, the Father, and the Spirit are one. Because that would be, um, that would be reading uh, contemporary heresies, controversies back into the Bible. In other words, it's sort of an anachronistic approach. Anachronism means you're going backwards in time. Okay, so it's almost like you're supposing that Jesus and his hearers needed to unwind or to unravel the controversies of Nicaea right there when he spoke. He did not. No one was no one was confused at that time when Jesus said statements like that. At least not with the idea of what he was saying. They rejected that he was the Messiah, but they knew to be to claiming to be the Son of God means that you are equal with God, and they knew that Messiah was certainly equal with God. So uh, that's they probably would, they would automatically assume by him saying that he is equating himself as equal to the Spirit as well. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So we'll get to that. Um, I think the passage that, uh, I hate to leave things, you know, um, as they are, but let's go quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, because Josh brought up this question, we'll close here. Josh brought up this question, I don't want to leave this um, unattended to. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, he asked a very good question, because um, you could, if you're not careful, be tempted to think that this is teaching modalism, okay? Now the Lord is the Spirit. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So a couple of things are being said there. Number one, the Lord is being identified here as Spirit. Now there's no problem with that, just like there's no problem with saying Jesus is Lord. And you would not conclude that that is saying Jesus is the Father. <laughs> so there is no modalism there. Consequently, you would not have a problem with, uh, with, um, with Jesus being identified also as 
the son of God, even though he's just been identified as God in a sense. So he can be identified as Lord and at the same time, the spirit of the Lord, because these are proper uh, titles. So one is, I would say one is descriptive of who he is uh, ontologically, and the other one is descriptive of who he is uh, in relationship to God, maybe uh, ontologically as well, but also economically, his relationship to the Father. Yes, sir. Could you explain that? I'll get to you. Liberty? I'm sorry. What's that? Liberty? What's he mean about liberty? Well, he's talking there about the, the glorious liberty of the new covenant versus the, versus the old covenant. Yes, sir. The salvation that we have in the new covenant through the Spirit. Just read the whole chapter, chapter 3. Yes, sir. There is a, a theory of interpretation on that passage that's not talking about Christ at all. That's actually talking about um, the Spirit being the Lord. And, and Christ at all? It's, it's not uh, that, that particular passage is not talking about Christ, but it's saying that the Spirit is the Lord, and the Lord there being interpreted as Well, Christ. I didn't say the Spirit was the Lord. Uh, the Christ, this is what's referring to Christ. He's, he's talking about a separate thing. I think we might be, we might be talking about Are you guys passing in the night right now? Yes. might be. <laughs> Yeah, no, because I'm not saying, verse 17, now the Lord, I'm not saying that's Christ. Okay. Oh, no, I didn't say that. No, I'm saying here the Spirit is being equated with kurios, oh, Lord, gotcha, gotcha. in the same way that okay. Jesus would be equated with Lord. So we don't have a so problem. Yahweh, the New Testament uses Yahweh. Yeah, pretty much. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. I, mis I misheard you. Okay. I think I did, too. I misheard, too. That's, I'm glad you clarified that. Good. Check the tape. It's on the record. It's got me. It's all right there, man. You heard me, right? I got you. See, Pastor Chris would have rose up on me by now. <laughs> Let's pray, huh? Chris, you want to pray for us? Sure. Well, Father, we thank you, God, for your word, God, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us, God, with clarity. Father, we thank you that you described to us your being. We thank you that we can worship you in spirit and truth and that we can yes. understand who you are and, and know the Son and know the Spirit as well, God. And it's a great mercy of you to reveal yourself and to condescend to us who are sinful and to reveal yourself to us. We thank you for Christ and just the clarity that we get of you from the Son. And God, we thank you. We praise you. We thank you for our salvations. We thank you that we're headed to your presence. Mm. Father, encourage us to worship you today. We ask you to bless this service, bless the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.